Welcome to the Project Update Podcast. I'm Joe Simpson. And I'm Dave Ramsey. How's it going, Dave? Uh, doing pretty good, Joe. How you doing? Doing pretty good. Doesn't look like we have any follow-up this week, but I uh, just wanted to say thank you again to Heidi for being on the episode last week. Uh, we had some we had a good conversation, and it seems like people are enjoying it. And uh, yeah, thanks again, Heidi. So... I'm just going to dive in with my project update, which is split between progress and banging my head on a keyboard. Um, so it's been kind of a interesting week of making lots of progress and then being really, really stuck and not having a good time with stuff. So one thing I did get done is the new icon picker for the app. So each of the list-based items have a basically a name, a color, and an icon that you can pick out. And I just made a pretty simple collection view with right now what is a placeholder indicator to indicate which one is already selected. So when you when you create a new list record, it just gives you a default icon and a default color um, just to have some values set so you don't have a funny looking screen but the blank nothing circle yeah um but then you can click on the icon picker and it goes it sideways over to a collection view controller that is kind of adapted to the screen size and it will show all of the icons in a color circle based on the color that's already selected on the previous screen so you can see how it's actually going to look like throughout the app. And that was actually relatively easy. Um, wasn't really any different than making like a picker view with a table view. And it's kind of up and running now. The The icons themselves were a little bit more work. So right now I'm using 101 icons from SF Symbols. And I may just end up shipping what I have now. I may expand or remove some of them from SF symbols into other stuff. Um, kind of based on the overall design of the app and where it goes. But it, assuming that I'm going to stick with the the color circle dot with an icon inside, then the filled in like solid looking icons were the ones that look best like that. Like the, the real thin line art ones do not look good like that, in my opinion. So I don't have very many of those. But uh, the filled in ones look pretty good. So I went through and downloaded the SF Symbol app that Apple ships. It's just basically an app that has all of the symbols and you can play with some settings to see what version you're going to get. You can export a copy of it if you want to make modifications to it and then use it like a regular image in your project. But it also allows you to just copy and paste the icon itself or the string name for the icon, which is how you use it in code. So I wanted to come up with you know a list of icons, but I didn't want to just dump them arbitrarily in to a list like as I was finding them. So I made a FileMaker database and of course. Yeah, of course, default option. And basically I set up two windows next to, so I had SF symbol, the app on one side and a FileMaker database on the other. And I had a simple button 
in FileMaker that would just uh, take the copy of the clipboard, create a new record and insert the string into that record. And then using just regular FileMaker stuff like uh, replaces was able to make a, a field for sections. So I numbered icons into various sections and then just did replaces with serialized numbers to get a sort order for them. So I have, I think, six sections of icons. Each one has their own independent sort order, so I could kind of play with them and see how they looked in different lists. And then another button at the end that would just get all of the list contents and format them as an array of strings that I can then use as the icon picker. And just a you know handy little tool. If I ever get away from SF symbols and start using an icon pack instead, then I can basically build the exact same tool, but with the icons in container fields and be able to play with the ordering that way. But, um, uh, it, when you're grabbing that, does that information also have the, like a name for the icon? Not like a file name, but like a description string? Nope. nope. <clears throat> okay. Yeah. I, I definitely went down this road and <laughs> thought anyway of like keyword searches for icons, but then that that may be something I do way down the line, but on the yeah. surface of it, it's it's way more complicated than it seems at first because you've got to have the right keywords for everything, and then there are more than one language in the world. Mm -hmm. And then you've got to translate those keywords and make sure those keywords actually make sense in the context that they're yeah. presented. Like I should just I'm going to keep the icons small enough, like the, the list of total icons small enough that I'm just not even going to worry about that for now. Um, there are other apps that do it. Uh, Streaks Workout is a good example where you've got, they've got a really nice icon picker in their app and some basic keyword searching. And I'm pretty sure it's all uh, multi-language support and international support, but that's not something I'm going to do day one. Oh yeah. yeah. And I wasn't even going to suggest that it was more of a thing of, well, if the data is there, you should bring that over now mm -hmm. and then just leave it there. Just just yeah. let it sit there underneath the surface waiting for the day when you want to touch it. But with a hundred icons, it's not a huge problem to glance at them. With 500 icons, you start needing some kind of filter. Yeah. Yeah. I may even reduce the icons down to around, you know, between 50 and say 70 so that you can pretty much see them all on the screen at the same time. I did kind of break the collection view into sections and it just didn't look right because of kind of the arbitrary nature of the collection view. Right. It's really the base it's really based on the device size and what orientation you're in. And it just like yeah, it's just maybe there's a way to make a custom layout to make them look better. But it just yeah, I didn't care for the way it looked. So for the time being it's just a big scrolling list, and then it runs out at the end. Let me go look at it on my, yeah, got 101. So I've got uh, five icons in each row. So I've got 20 rows plus one row with one icon on it at the end. And if I turn the device, it looks like I've got 11 icons. Yeah. That way so yeah it, it there is a little bit of trickiness i need to figure out like when i open the edit view it opens as a modal card 
um, which is pretty much what I want. And you can click cancel to dismiss it. You can drag down to dismiss it. And I'll implement that. Like, are you sure you want to discard this change thing for when you accidentally swipe down? Then you can click done to hit done. But the icon view segues over to another controller. Those two buttons disappear, but you can still pull down on the whole thing. So I need to figure out a way to either prevent them from pulling down when they're in this particular collection view or maybe just implement that additional check, like you're going to disregard all of the changes to this, which there are only three items that they could be editing. It's still something I noticed when I was playing around with it this weekend. I did spend some time shopping around for icon packs, but I have <laughs> yet to find anything that I really like. Like there's lots of stuff that's okay, but nothing that was really fantastic. So SF symbols for, for now is what I've got. Yeah. I, I think it's a solid starting point. Yeah. They're, I mean, they're, they're fine. There's just nothing in there that really jumps out as like very personal. Like some of the icon packs I found had icons mm. that represented more things that were similar to the data that we're talking about, but the actual style of the icons I didn't really think was suitable. Right. So, so maybe I just need to commission a bunch of those in the style of SF symbols, like with the rounded filled shapes. This is one of those things like I can't really draw for anything in a 2D app. So I'm not really going to make these apps, these icons myself. I could actually have better luck making 3D models of them and rendering them out as images in Blender than I could with like drawing in Sketch or Illustrator, which is a horrible way to do anything. <laughs> that's, but I could, that's interesting. I can make a couple hundred low poly icons in 3D, but uh, yeah. Yeah, it's one of the things that's been on my list for FM Perception for a while is that I used icons from publicly available packs for the various kinds of components in FM Perception. And I think they look good, but they're not necessarily consistent across the entire collection. Mm -hmm. Like I couldn't find the, the icon for a script and the icon for a table have slightly different line weights. Mm -hmm. And so they're not quite perfect, but I'm thinking that all of that searching and all of that knowledge gave me a really good idea of what it is that I want in the end. And so I should be able to put together a document that says... I'm looking for icons that cover these things. Here's samples, but I need them to meet these characteristics and then get them all contracted real quick. Have yeah. some nice custom ones, but that's a little further down the line. Yeah. So the rest of the week I was spending time kind of implementing the rest of the kind of neato table view features and I'm continuing to run into issues that point me back towards having problems with auto layout and my circle view. So at its core, I have an image view in the table view cell or on the detail view. And then I have a little bit of code that rounds that corner 
based on its height and width. That will, as long as it's a square object, it'll make it into a circle. And it does that basically at runtime. It's not a design time thing though. I played around with like uh, I'd be designable stuff, but for some reason that code and auto layout don't play well together. So if I make what seems like a perfectly reasonable set of constraints in the custom table view cell with the icon, basically I want it to be pinned to the side of the screen. So it's always in the same vertical position and can, you know, kind of move up or down horizontally to always stay in the center of the cell based on how big the cell contents are, whether it's multi-line text or if it's just somebody has dynamic type on and has a really big font selected. And I can do that with a square image or any other object in Interface Builder. But as soon as I throw that image in there and round it, I end up with that football shape that we talked about last week where it's, it's being warped. And the only way to get around that was to turn off auto layout and use pins and struts to kind of fake my constraints and then have them turned into constraints at runtime. But that is very limiting from everything else that I want to do. So dynamic type doesn't actually work as well. Like the cell itself doesn't actually expand proportionally to the font size the way that you would expect. And there are some sizes where you are increasing the size of the text and the cell gets smaller and then it starts hugging the text itself. Like that's definitely not what I want. <laughs> there are also, this is a definitely a list-based app. So there isn't gonna be a multi-column or multi-panel interface on the iPad, but a full width table with a little bit of text and an accessory looks bad. It just does. Uh, like on a 13 inch iPad, you've mm -hmm. got a little bit of text over here, a whole bunch of white space, and then the accessory on the other side. And what I want is basically a table view that will keep all the contents in the middle and just ignore the sides. And there are ways to do this. I can't remember the exact name of it. It's in my notes somewhere. I think it's readable, readable width with table views. And that is a feature that works great as long as you're using auto layouts. <laughs> So I, I keep finding like five or six different things that I'm used to seeing in apps that I'm trying to implement and I can't because I'm not using auto layout on these cells. So I've kind of, like I've worked myself into a corner or I've designed myself into a corner and I was hoping we could talk through the options of what I see, how to get myself out of this and I don't know, just get your opinion on them or at least help me think out loud. Sure. So option zero is pivot to Swift UI, which I spent some time on this weekend and it is not going very well. And we'll talk about that after this topic. But um, So I guess that, that's an option to leave on the table, but currently it doesn't seem like a viable option because I can't even get basic things working, at least with core data. So option one is remove the circle entirely and have an object, so basically have the icon itself take on the custom color. So just imagine a white or black table cell with text that's gonna be the system default of either white or black, depending on whether or not you're in dark mode or light mode. And then 
a SF symbol that has a tint color of your selected color for the app. And by default, it's a purple color, but you can pick anything else. Um, I probably need to do a mock-up of that and see how it looks under various conditions. And that has some advantages because I think it could actually increase the type of icons that I can use. I think some of the line art may look better that way that it doesn't, when it doesn't look as good inside a filled circle. Um, that could also give me the ability to make that icon respond to dynamic type as well. So the icon itself could get bigger or smaller depending on the font size setting at the system level. So that's option one. Option two, which is probably the easiest, but the one I'm just, if this was 2013, this is what I would do, but it's not 2013 and this look kind of looks dated, which would be to make a, like a solid block on the side of the table cell, make that color fill in and have the icon floating in the middle of that. And like, I've seen that in lots of apps and it looks okay, but it's looked okay for six years. <laughs> um, I could possibly add some flair to that by, you know, rounding the corners on the side of that and rounding the corners on the other side of the cell to make them look like little lozenge shaped things. But again, it's kind of like, it's going backwards in design a bit. So I'm not really crazy about that option. Option three is to fill the entire row with the solid color and just have white text pretty much all of the time because white looks good on all of the colors that I picked out. But that also, that invites kind of very ugly lists of things, mm -hmm. kind of a fruit salad on a list view, which probably isn't gonna look good. Like I, I can see yeah. that looking good if a discerning user kept all of their colors sorted together. Uh -huh. But uh, aside from that, I, I can't see that looking good. Yeah. Is there another option? Nope, just okay. those three plus Swift UI. Um. So let me see if I can if I can spin one for you. Um. We had previously discussed the complexities of doing like a CA layer kind of thing mm -hmm. and kind of custom rendering an object there. Um, I The thing is, I've seen in a dozen different places that kind of code. Mm -hmm. Because that's been the standard way that I knew of to accomplish that task generating like a rounded version of a picture or something like that for most of the history of iOS. Um, so the sample code is all over the place. I think they even did it as part of the demo of IB Designable when they released that feature at DevCon, uh, WWDC, okay. um, where they had like, <clears throat> they put a picture into a box and then it rendered, it, it rounded the corners. Like right there in the inspector, even though that was running as like a core animation thing. Or yeah. CA yeah. layer or graphic layer or whatever. Yeah, everything that I've found on this has all been at the, at the UI kit level of 
of basically rounding the corners of the view itself. So like adding a border to the view and then rounding that. Um, I haven't found anything at the lower level. Hmm. Okay. Well, maybe we'll do some Google searching later. Yeah. Um, and I found I found a lot of people having this exact same issue, and the answer is always the same thing. You either have auto layout or a rounded image or a <laughs> circle image. Like there, I've not I've I've looked at least like I think eighteen Stack Overflow posts last week, like Thursday and Friday, and all of them basically had the same conclusion. You can uh, either use auto layout or you can use a rounded circular image. I'm like, well, that's that's terrible. <laughs> And this is so. This is one of the reasons why I spent some time with Swift UI this weekend, because one of the first things you do in the Swift UI tutorials is take an image and put it in a circle. Like, <laughs> voila, it's done. Um, but yeah, I don't know. We can we can do some extra searching around. Like I would love to keep the circles there because I think they look distinctive, and I I just really like the way that they look. But failing that, I'm kind of leaning towards option one, which is coloring the icon itself and just keeping it in line with the text, which may be, I mean, as long as I can keep them centered um, vertically, where like the center of all the icons in the uh -huh. list is at the same point, then I should be in good shape. And I should say the, the warping that I'm seeing uh -huh. is never the icon itself. It's always just the frame of the icon. Sure. Sure, you'd have to do something with like a CA layer to warp the text. Mm -hmm. That's one of the nice things about using a font. Yeah. Yeah. So Swift UI, um, bad bad times this weekend. <laughs> so I spent Saturday morning just <laughs> brushing up on some tutorials, and uh, there was like five really good videos on the Ray Wenderlich site. If you are a subscriber to their like a premium package. They've got some good stuff. But I'm working with Core Data and I've kind of ruled out not working with Core Data because of the other complexities of moving the data around and keeping it in sync and keeping it off. You know, if you delete the app of your device, I don't want you to lose all the data. Um, but because I'm using Core Data, I cannot figure out a good way to implement core data with Swift UI. There's no documentation on this whatsoever. There doesn't seem to be anybody doing this in any kind of public capacity. I found a couple of people, like there's one thread on the Apple developer forum that had people basically saying, well, you could try this. Well, you could try this. Like there was lots of this. Well, you could try something like this, but no one had ever done it and had a working <laughs> version. And there was, uh, I found one thing on GitHub where somebody had made a, a basic to-do list application with Core Data and Swift UI, and it's already been broken by all the changes in the Xcode beta. So a lot of the methods that they're using don't even work anymore. It it but may I, be a little early for canonical examples, Joe. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I basically tried to re-engineer or just kind of re-implement their design pattern of basically making an object that is basically a data manager. And then that that holds the fetch result controller. You know, you pass it a reference to a manage object context. 
you define a fetch request, it populates the fetch result controller with an array of results or an array, a nil array or blank array, I should say. Um, like I, I can write the fetch result request, I can make the controller, I can make that manager object. I can then, when the app is starting up, instantiate a copy of that and pass it to Swift UI as an environment variable so that the object can see it. But then when I actually try to use the data, I'm getting really obscure messages like using the list object in Swift data, which is kind of how you work with collections. Um, it doesn't work quite the same way as like a for each or a for loop. It looks syntactically similar, but it seems to require some extra junk. And I'm passing it an array of objects like, hey, iterate over this and make me one of these, but it doesn't understand what the object is. It can tell it's a managed object, like an NS managed object, but it can't see any of its properties. So when I say, you know, list.name to get the specific name for one of them, it, it doesn't understand name. It just won't compile. And I've tried making it identifiable at the NS managed object level. I've tried um, making an explicit ID, like adding a UUID onto the table and specifying that as the ID. I tried doing the inline initializer that, that kind of decides what its ID is going to be as you're parsing it through the list. None of this stuff works. Um, when I ran into something similar to that, when I was doing the, um, the kind of concurrent or, or multi-threaded for each in Swift had some similar characteristics. And one of the things that I had to do was effectively uh, cast the item as an appropriate subclass. Mm -hmm. So like it was pulling an object off of the stack. And the first thing I had to do in my for loop was go, now this object is actually a blah. And it was like, okay, it had no problem with that operation. And then after that, everything else worked fine. Yeah. It doesn't seem to let me do that. Mm. Okay. Like I, like that was my, that was the first thing I tried because that's what you do in UI kit when you want to cast stuff, you just use the as or as uh, exclamation mark to forecast something. And that doesn't work. And I tried to do the most obvious thing, which was like, I'm just gonna print out these values to the console when the app runs. You can't print in Swift UI. All of your view code is running in a computed property on a struct. You cannot use the print command in Swift UI. Like, what is Apple thinking? Hmm. Like the closest that people have gotten to, like, well, if you want to debug it, then you have to make a function that prints your values and then make a button that calls the function when the user taps it. But what if the button doesn't draw? Exactly. <laughs> well, then you click the button and you'll be fine. No. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. So I don't know. Switch UI has been frustrating. Like it's frustrating because it looks like from a UI standpoint, I can solve a lot of the problems that I'm having, but from an everything else standpoint, it's like, there's just, 
There's no documentation for it. The documentation that literally exists in the documentation app has no information. It's like, here is the signature of the function. That's it. That's all we have to say. We don't, we're not going to tell you what any of this stuff does, when to use it, when to use this one over that one. Like, it's just none of that stuff exists. So yeah, it's been pretty frustrating. At this point, I'm probably leaning towards waiting for the book. Mm. Yeah, the Apple documentation I found almost always answers my question if I already know how to work with the thing. Mm -hmm. Like it makes great reference stuff where you're like, what exactly were the properties of that thing? What were the parameters that I needed to send? And there's enough text there that I can go, oh yeah, it's these things in this order and that's why I did that. Cool. Mm -hmm. But yeah, there's basically no explanation. Yeah. No, I'm not saying basically no explanation. I mean, every one of these I looked at, they're just a signature in a big empty white box where text should go. <laughs> there's no yeah. text there, Dave. Gotcha. No explanation. Yeah. <clears throat> so yeah, that's been my weekend with Swift UI at this point. I don't know. I reached out to a couple of people on Twitter who write tutorials and including the guy from Ray Winderlick to see, hey, anybody want to write a tutorial about this? Because I'm stuck and could use help. This is the last couple of days of July. I wanted to have a beta out in early August and get some testing and feedback done. And I don't think I'm going to be able to do that if I switch to Swift UI. And I think I can do that if I keep going on my current app. UI kit version, but I may have to dumb down some of the features, maybe not fret about how it looks like on an iPad as much. Um, or maybe, I don't know about explicitly removing support for iPad because that would annoy me as a user, but maybe just release it as best I can for an iPhone with the intention of you know improving the layouts on iPad. Mm -hmm as quick as I can. iPad but, can easily be a 1.1 feature. A lot of people make it a 2.0 feature. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's funny. Like, I, I understand that intellectually that most people use the iPhone way more. But personally, <laughs> like iPhone is just something that I, you know, have calls on and send the occasional message with and listen to music and podcasts on. But like, if you look at my screen time every week, it's like, three to five times as much time on the iPad as the iPhone. Which mm -hmm. is kind of weird. I'll be interested to see what that looks like when the Mac screen time starts getting worked into that. I'm not looking forward to that. <laughs> there, there are questions I don't want the answer to, Joe. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that's my project update. I think I'm, I'm kind of leaning towards... Option one with the colored icons, unless I can find some good code to round the image in a way that doesn't mess with the constraints, which would be ideal. But uh, yeah, that's kind of what I'm hoping for. So what are you, what have you been working on? So last week, I think I was talking about um, working on a parser for FileMaker calculations. Mm -hmm. And um I realized shortly after we recorded that there were some assumptions that I had made in the way I was writing the parser that 
were just going to cause me problems. They weren't going to allow me to capture all the information from the calculation. And so I needed something more elaborate. So I started doing some research, digging in. There's a lot of stuff that's been written on parsers and tokenizers and things like that. And found something that I thought I could work with and really started building the thing out. And it makes a much better, more granular tokenization from which I can do lexing. So like step one is break it into chunks. Mm-hmm. And step two is figure out what those chunks are. Is this a variable name? Is this a field name? Is this a function? You know, the plus character could be an addition operator or it could be just a character in a string. And so you need to figure out where it is and what it's doing and and stuff like that before you can really understand the thing. And honestly, in the end, I don't need to understand the thing. I don't have to get into kind of the next steps of turning each of these things into operations so that I can run the calculation because I don't have the data they were running on. Okay. I don't have to get all the way to the end of writing my own calculation engine. I just have to be able to put every single item in the calculation into the appropriate bin. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I got really far with that much more elaborate. I mean, it, it's a, in some ways it's a simpler parser, much easier to maintain, but it does it with a, a higher degree of granularity. Um, it uses uh, regular expressions, but the way that it uses them was actually understandable. It was really cool. And then it, I, I mean, I realize that's mostly a contradiction in terms, but <laughs> these were all very simple, tiny, regular expressions that were used to mm-hmm. grab tiny chunks out of this thing. Written with very easily to read Perl. <laughs> um, and then uh, I said, you know, I can't test this effectively. Like, I can't be the one... Who like the calculations that I'm writing, it's figuring out where things are, but I know there's weirder calculations out there. Mm-hmm. And I need some well, help writing calculations that are really gonna stress test this. So I'm laughing because Dave already showed me these. And by help, when you asked for help, I think you you received an assault. <laughs> <laughs> like some of these I can only describe as a violation. <laughs> It's it, it's exactly what I asked for, but not what I thought I was going to get. Mm-hmm. I thought I would explore some interesting edge cases. What I got horrified me. Um, there were things like um, uh, the ability to use white space as a variable name. Like, a return, a tab, and five spaces is now the name of my variable. This is, this is a supported thing. You can actually do this in the FileMaker calculation engine. Please, no one do this. Um, there was one guy sent a, a let statement 
that assigned a local val- variable whose name was just dollar sign, which for the non-filemaker programmers in the audience, a single dollar sign is the prefix for a local variable, which means this variable technically had no name. It was just the prefix. And the FileMaker calculation engine accepts that as a valid variable that you can work with. I mean, it was basically the parser accepting the platonic ideal of a variable. <laughs> um, and uh, like some of these things are so terrible, I can't describe them to you because you can't picture it until mm-hmm. you see it. Um, yeah, like, like basically... If you're not a FileMaker developer, none of this will make sense. And if you are a FileMaker developer, I would never subject you to these calculations. <laughs> yeah, you should you should never have the idea in your head that this is possible. But so there's so there's only one of these out of the ones you sent me that has any claim to like legitimate use, and that's the one sent by you know who you are. We'll talk about this later. Um, but that's the one that has. It's written in a more traditional way. It's using get field name and get value name or get value mm-hmm. a lot um, to basically abstract out parts of the database into kind of runtime calculations. And I have definitely seen a ton of this stuff. I have at times been guilty of writing stuff similar to this, so not to this extreme and definitely not with using so many odd characters as prefixes and suffixes. But uh, even that, like how do you begin to parse something when there are, there are just no rules? Right. And that to a certain degree is the problem. So there are rules. There are rules and the rules exist. They have to, because at some level FileMaker has to do this parsing. But um, who is, who is writing the rules? Kafka? <laughs> no, it's, just that the rules were, you know, the a local variable name has to have single dollar sign followed by express or not not expression, but uh, character sequence. Mm-hmm. And something in the parser allows character sequence to be empty. <laughs> and so when that happens, it forms a valid thing. And this actually leads into where I need to go which is I have to start crawling through my contacts at FileMaker and see if I can get the BNF notation or nearest equivalent for the FileMaker calculation engine. Hmm. There are, in CompSci, there are formal ways of describing the way the text is converted into meaningful logical units. And it will cover what the uh, what the string structure looks like, and what the function structure looks like, and what the let structure looks like, and can uh, describe if you're looking at a calculation where every single piece should go and what type of object it is. And there are a couple of different ways of describing this. The most common of them is called BNF, and it's some people's names. I can't remember exactly Hmm. um but the thing is you can't write a parser this complicated without having a formal set of rules 
Like there's this calculation engine would have broken catastrophically sometime in the last decade if somebody hadn't written the formal rules and then made sure that the parser followed the formal rules. I, mm-hmm. I can't imagine that occurring. Yeah. Um, and so I just need to find the person who has the formal rules and convince them to let me see them. Um, because once you have those formal rules, interestingly, there are tools and libraries that will actually computationally write a parser for you hmm. from that stuff. So it takes this formal set of rules input and outputs a largely inscrutable parser. Like you can't really look at that parser and see what it's doing clearly mm-hmm. because it's it the parser was written by a computer. But if you want to update it or add new functionality, you go back to the original rules, edit those rules, feed them back into the system again, and out the other end comes a new parser. Um, <clears throat> I'm not going to be able to hit 100% precision without finding that information. Yeah. Um, I can get pretty close. Um, but that's not good enough for me. I, I want to be able to peg this thing. Yeah. So sure. um, the good news is I'll be at the FileMaker Developer Conference next week. So part of what I can do with my time is start trying to hunt down those connections and find the people who can get me access to the information. Mm-hmm. The other thing is I can't, I mean, I don't know if the people at FileMaker will agree, but I can't see any reason for that definition to be a secret. Yeah. Like, it's not your code. It's just a, a more formal representation of how to write calculations. What are valid calculations and what are invalid calculations? Um, well, plus showing them some of these examples may actually help them get rid of some of these edge cases, like using white space as a variable name probably shouldn't be permitted, even though it's permitted now that they should probably code around that and say, no, explicitly, you can't do this. My guess is they're not going to do that. And the reason is we are pretty deep in a file format. Mm -hmm. Like to change that in a substantive way doesn't necessarily necessitate a format change. Um, But you're talking about taking stuff that's worked for the last six to eight years and suddenly going, no, this calculation is no longer valid. What Mm -hmm. does the error reporting for that look like? Like, is there a message or does it just suddenly stop working when you deploy FileMaker 19? No, no, it doesn't have to stop working. It doesn't have to stop evaluating. It needs to stop validating when you close the calculation window. That's the only thing that really needs to force the change. Like you open one of these and you can't close it. Yep. And so if that's the solution, then I still have to be able to parse it Mm -hmm. because those calculations will exist for the next 10 years Mm -hmm. from people who just go, well, we can't edit it anymore. So nobody opens that definition. Hopefully nobody's actually doing that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, these are how to do it. Then I'm afraid that maybe somebody is. If nothing else, other than a practical joke. These are worst case scenarios, but I I really feel for the people who put together these examples because what they tell me is 
like I've been doing FileMaker development for a long time and these ideas never occurred in my head. I, Good. I, I feel for the person <laughs> who's like, oh, you want to see a terrible calculation? Let me show you. Do, 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 do. Like that's, that just bespeaks a, a painful upbringing <laughs> as a developer. Um, so yeah, but that's, that's my current fun. So what I need to do for the next week is put that to sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, polish up some more stuff for doing demos next week. And then next week is doing lots of demos, getting lots of feedback and input, and then trying to make and cement some connections within FileMaker so that I can get access to some information that while it isn't necessarily secret is not part of what they normally try to release. Yeah. Um, and there's just institutional resistance to those sorts of things. We haven't released it before. I don't know that it's authorized to release it now. Who do I have to talk to to get that authorization? And suddenly your request languishes for six months. Um, so yeah. So is FM comparison ready or will be ready for demos and showing off? Uh, demos are easy. Demos and showing off I can totally do. It is not ready for beta yet. Okay. Um, there's just, there's some more stuff. And if I really want to get, if I can get this BNF notation, I'd rather have this functional parser. Um, I'm about 98% sure that with the parser as it currently stands, it will have a tendency to generate false positives for changes. Mm-hmm. So changes that it should say, well, you renamed a field that is referenced in the calculation. So I should be able to wipe that out, but I can't. So I'm still showing you that it's a change. Um, but I don't really want to have any of those. Hmm. I, I had one more little bit of fun, um, which uh, ties into our kind of long running topic about things like unit testing. Hmm. And I really discovered another category of things that I need to unit test. Is it unit it's... testing? <laughs> no, I don't have to unit test the unit testing okay. because <laughs> if the unit testing itself fails, then the tests will fail for inscrutable reasons. Probably. I mean, honestly, this latest thing has me doubting that. Like I want to get a job testing the unit testing framework <clears throat> at for a major ID. That'd be, that'd be a fun six months. Oh. Um, anyway, go ahead. But uh, yeah, just getting a, a little bit there... It, 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 I, I'm still playing with it in my head and trying to figure out how to describe it. It's a question of like how, where and when you unit test. Like unit testing, everything is great. But, um, you know, there have been a couple of spots where I've bumped into bugs. For example, the not the most, not the beta stuff for iOS or macOS. Mm-hmm. but the latest and greatest. So the um, 
I've lost track of the numbers over time. The 1014 stuff. Mojave. Mm-hmm. Mojave. Um, there was a change somewhere in some of the APIs that broke a chunk of my code in FM perception. And it was literally something as simple as converting a hexadecimal value into decimal. <laughs> and it just broke. Nice. Um, <clears throat> so because this is kind of part of a larger thing, I mean, I didn't make my own function for doing this because it's a single line thing. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like it was, oh, so just take this and convert it to, to decimal. And there's only one spot in the entirety of the FileMaker DDR that I ever found that this needs to happen. In every other place when they store a primary key for a particular entity, it is a decimal value. In FileMaker themes, they are stored in hexadecimal. Hmm. Don't know why. Honestly, my guess is typo. <laughs> um, they outsourced that bit of code. <clears throat> I, I I don't know how that happened. I'd love to find out someday. I don't know they're going to let me. I mean, it, it's fun because if you got version control, you just go find that lame line and go blame. Uh, but regardless, um, the Swift code that I had for converting hexadecimal back to decimal stopped working suddenly and spontaneously. Mm-hmm. And there was nothing in my testing that would notice that. Um, Which, at one level, is just incomplete test coverage at a high level. Um, It's difficult to do high-level unit testing on some of this XML manipulation because of the fact that these functions eat large chunks of XML. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's hard to feed them fifty or a hundred characters of XML and get it to work, and a unit test that requires five k of XML is a little crazy. I mean, it's not very maintainable or understandable, if nothing else. Like you can't really see what's going on there, so that's complicated. But down inside this thing, where it's trying to display what are the properties of a theme, I have a separate column for this value in hexadecimal, and then the decimal value, just in case you want something numeric. Yeah, that one little one-line function just broke. Nice. Um, Basically, you ask for a uint32, and it returns null. (laughs) Now, you just have to ask for an int. That's it. That's all the problem. So, um, the two lessons from this are, at least that I'm taking from it at this point, is if I've got one of these big functions that does a ton of stuff, I need to create unit tests for any small snippets of code that are doing conversions, adjustments, Mm -hmm. reformattings, whatever. Like... Somewhere in my unit testing needs to be a little thing that makes sure that when I concatenate two strings together, I get the end result of that string. 
Like, let me just have a unit test for that, because I'm doing it all over the place. And at some point, they're going to do something to that Swift compiler that's going to break it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so let's have a unit test that just makes sure that no matter what, text concatenation still works. And it sounds silly, but at any point, they could change the rules on that. And I don't currently have a test that tells me that that's where the break is going to happen. There are other tests that might notice it somewhere, but nothing that tests that explicitly. And there's been a couple of times where, as the Swift APIs have shifted, the the API has moved out from underneath me. Mm -hmm. And there's some little hole that I fell through. So, lesson number one is unit tests really, really simple little things. Because you really, really, really want to know when they stop working. Um, and I had a lesson number two, and now I've forgotten it. Uh, oh yeah, lesson number two is, um, uh, th this is one of those lessons that they, they handed us a long time ago. And, um, I periodically forgot, which is never force unwrap an optional. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I get back this null and I force unwrap it and it just goes kablooey. And if I had made sure, like, you can write the code to force unwrap an optional, but that code itself needs to be wrapped in code that watches for the optional <laughs> and handles it. That's, like, they gave you the function for force unwrapping an optional, but you should never, ever, ever do it without a bunch of other code wrapped around it. Mm -hmm. Like, cause yeah, it just, you try to pull up a list of themes and it crashes. Why? Well, it couldn't convert hexadecimal to decimal. And so it fails. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I had one of those last week where I was testing one of the other data entry views and I had the done button disable if there was nothing in a text field. But one of the dates was required too, but the done button hadn't taken that into account yet. And I was using the date value with a force unwrap thing because there's always a value there. It's not, you know, there's always a date. You can't, you can't not have a date except for that time where I managed to create a record without a date and close it. And then the app would crash every time you launched because it's parsing through the table records, finding a record that has nil where it's force casting or um, force unwrapping and crashing. I was just like, yep, that's uh, pretty amateur. Yeah. So this is a little spot that snuck through. Yeah. Like I noticed it immediately what, what had happened, but it's just kind of goofy. Oh no, I, I needed a, uh, a playground. <laughs> I was like, okay, swift playground. Feed this into this null. Okay, so yeah, I, I, I can see how that would cause a problem. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, <clears throat> so that was lots and lots of fun. <sighs> cool. So next week you will be at DevCon, so we will not be recording mm -hmm. on our regular time, but uh, we are going to have a special episode about a special topic to be determined in about half an hour. And then uh, that'll be out as episode six next week. So thanks for listening this week. That's our show. 
Uh, if you want to support the show, then leave us a good review in iTunes or recommend us on Overcast or your podcast player of choice. And please tell your friends about us. Thanks for listening.